0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving. Maybe you're cleaning and even exercising. But what if you could save money by switching to Progressive Insurance? Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save over $700 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates, national annual average insurance savings by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2020 and May 2021. Potential savings will vary... Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey guys, before we get to the show, quick announcement we will be having an enrollment for the Strenuous Life this week. Head over to strenuouslife.co to learn more. The quick pitch is this Strenuous Life is an online membership platform that we created to help you put all the things we've written about on AOM, talked about on the podcast, into action through badges. We've got daily check ins for physical activity, good deeds. We give you weekly challenges. Check it out. Hope to see you there. Strenuouslife.co. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The Medal of Honor is the military's highest and most prestigious decoration and is awarded to a member of the United States Armed Forces who distinguished himself conspicuously by gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. During World War II, no U.S. unit would produce more Medal of Honor recipients than the Army's 3rd Infantry Division, and my guest, Alex Kershaw, profiles four of these recipients, Morris Britt, Michael Daly, Keith Ware, and the famous Audie Murphy in his new book, Against All Odds, a true story of ultimate courage and survival in World War II. Today on the show, Alex explains how the prodigiousness of the 3rd Infantry Division was due to effective leadership and the sheer fact they were in combat so long, serving from the very beginning of the war in Europe to its very end. We then get into the stories of Brit, Daly, Ware, and Murphy, unpacking their varied backgrounds, how they earned their medals of honor, and many more decorations besides, and what their lives were like after the war. We enter a conversation with what Alex has personally taken away from the stories of these brave men after the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash Against All Odds. All right, Alex Kershaw, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. So you got a new book out about World War II, Against All Odds, A True Story of Ultimate Courage and Survival in World War II. And in this book, you take a deep dive into the war experience of four Medal of Honor recipients. We got Maurice Britt, Michael Daly, Keith Ware, and then the famous Audie Murphy. What led you to to these men's stories? I became fascinated by Medal of Honor recipients in World War II. And I actually
1: went and met the, at the time, this was like three years ago, he was the oldest living recipient of the Medal of Honor from World War II, a guy called Bob Maxwell, who lived out in Oregon. And actually at the time when I saw him, there were five living recipients from World War II and there's now just one. And I interviewed all but one of those five because their stories are amazing. And I just thought, hey, while these guys are still alive, I'm going to try and interview each one I can. But Bob Maxwell was amazing and he belonged to the 3rd ID, 3rd Infantry Division. And he told me not only about how he'd received the medal, but also about his amazing division. And I learned a very important fact, which was that the 3rd Infantry Division received more medals of honour than any other US division in World War II. And I thought to myself, what's going on here? And by, by more, I mean far more. So the 3rd ID was one of 90 divisions in Europe at the end of the war, 90 odd divisions. And if you compare the 3rd ID, they had... Today they officially have 40 Medal of Honor recipients from World War II, and the 101st Airborne have two. So the glamour boys, you know, Band of Brothers guys, the the guys that won the war single-handedly, they they had two, but the third ID that most people have never heard of had 20 times more. So I was like, what the what the heck's going on here? And it was just a very interesting question. And I discovered that they had the reason why they had so many medals is because they'd fought longest and lost more men. They started at the very beginning of the European campaign and uh, were there right at the end. So they had a hell of a lot more opportunities than
0: some U.S. divisions to to earn medals. Well, so let's talk about their, their history because um, throughout the book, you often refer to them as the Marne men. Why did the 3rd Infantry Division guys, why did they refer themselves as Marne men? That's from
1: World War One when that division was credited with stopping a very brutal German advance, actually stopping the, the Germans from reaching Paris. And the 3rd Infantry Division made a very valiant stand along the banks of the Marne River. And uh, forevermore has been known as the,
0: the Marne Division. The, the, the Marne men are the 3rd ID soldiers to this very day. Let's talk about, so you mentioned that they, the reason why there were so many Medal of Honor winners from the 3rd Division is that they were there from the start so let's talk about like i mean kind of give us a big picture overview what was their first mission and then how did it progress like how long were they out in the battlefield when it was all said and done during world war ii
1: well it was an epic journey it's um i think officially 335 days of actual combat and it lasted from november 1942 with operation torch when the third id came in north africa not far from casablanca and then they fought through sicily that was the second amphibious invasion and then they invaded Italy southern Italy that was their third amphibious invasion they fought all the way up the bloody spine of Italy in the fall of 1943 were in their fourth amphibious invasion at Anzio which is January 1944 in May of 1944 when the 3rd ID tried to break out of the the iron ring the german iron ring that surrounded them at, at Anzio they lost On one single day in May of 1944, they lost, I think it's 932 men. You'll have to fact check me, but that's the largest single loss of men from any one American division in World War II on one day. So that's like a huge amount of men to lose from in just one day of action. Anyway, that was their fourth, Anzio was their fourth amphibious operation. And then their fifth and final invasion was the South of France in August of 1944 and the 3rd ID were therefore involved in more amphibious invasions than any other American division in the European theatre. And then they fought all the way up through France to the German border, very fierce fighting in in what was called the Colmar Pocket. And then they fought all the way across the Rhine and then ended up in Nuremberg in April 1945 and had the great honour of being the uh, US soldiers that uh, liberated Berchtesgaden, which was Adolf Hitler's alpine lair. So if you watch Band of Brothers, you know, the last couple of episodes, you see these, these screaming eagles um, drinking at Berchtesgaden. Well, in fact, it, the uh, the first guys there were the third ID guys, and they wanted to be there for a very okay. good reason, the very important reason, which was that they'd been there at the very beginning and they wanted to be there at the very end, at the symbolic end at, at Hitler's mountain retreat, and
0: they were. No, it's what I love about this book because oftentimes when we watch movies or read books about infantry during World War II. It's typically like you're, it's D-Day stuff, which is you've written about that an amazing thing. Sometimes you it gets the Italian and the African campaigns get overlooked, but like that was that's how the whole thing started with the Americans, come, you know, working with the British and working their way up through you know North Africa, Italy, into France. Yeah, no, I mean people think that that the European campaign began on June the
1: sixth, nineteen forty-four, D-Day. European theater included North Africa so troops sent over and you know to invade North Africa in November 1942 they were strictly speaking there in within the European theater that was a the European theater operation so November 1942 you go think about all the long bloody months you go from 1942 November 1942 all the way to June 1944 that's a hell of a long time and Americans were in very fierce combat long before June the 6th, 1944. I mean, the 3rd ID alone had been involved in four amphibious invasions. The first time that Americans started to kill and die to liberate Europe was actually the 10th of July, 1943 in Sicily. And that's almost a year before you had the D-Day invasion. So people often forget that there was a hell of a lot of fighting, very important fighting that went on in the European theater long before D-Day. The, the one and only, apparently, D-Day of June the 6th, 1944. No, there are lots of D-Days throughout. Yeah, World and War there's Day. a lot of D-Days in the Pacific. I mean, I, I it's really funny because uh, when I wrote my book, The Bedford Boys, back in, wow, I'm making, making myself sound really old because I am. Back in 2003, I, was, I went to a veteran's home and this geezer, this guy at the back, of, stood up at the back of the room and he was a Pacific veteran and he said, you know what? Where what are you going on about all these guys on D Day? I was in—I was in so many D Days in the Pacific. I can't remember. So, yeah, but that, that the Pacific was all about D Days, um, island hopping, etc. And you have to remember that the word D Day, D stands for a day of operation, an important day of operation. So there were, you know, it was just a code term for a
0: day—a day of invasion—and there were many, many in World War Two. one thing that impressed me about the Third Division was how hard they were driven. Like they were they were booking it. Like they they make it to oh, yeah. Italy, but like yeah. they were covering 30, 40 miles a day fully rucked.
1: Yeah. They had a a really fantastic division commander, a guy called Lucian Truscott. And uh, you know, he was a hard, hard living, hard drinking, chain smoking guy who when he arrived in in Europe had a copy of War and Peace in his kit bag. Really tough tough guy, real loved his men, loved his division, kind of pattern-esque figure. You know, he wore a leather flying jacket, which he didn't see many US division commanders wearing. And he developed a training system in before the invasion of Sicily in July 1943. He wanted his guys to be almost like cavalry. So they wanted them to be able to move really fast on foot, to pivot and swerve and to to be very highly mobile. But that required them to be incredibly fit. And he developed a training program whereby they had to perform what was called the Truscott Trot, and that was basically, you know, you're not you're not walking at speed, you're almost jogging, and they were doing at least three miles an hour. And in over several days in Sicily, the Third ID performed the Truscott Trot and covered record distances in record time in in World War II. I mean, they covered like a hundred miles in you know two or three days on what was basically a forced march but they weren't they weren't marching they were basically trotting so they were famous for that yeah
0: did uh, patton play a role with the 3rd division uh
1: patton was a third army commander so he wasn't the army commander for the 3rd id that was a guy called alexander patch patton didn't have any control throughout the war over the 3rd id because he was a different army commander but the, it's interesting that you mentioned patton because The guy that often gets overlooked in World War II, who was a very capable army commander is, as I mentioned, Alexander Patch, who uh, was the 7th Army commander and commanded the 3rd Division and the 5th Infantry Division and the 36th Infantry Division and others throughout the uh, campaign to liberate France and then Germany. And sadly, I write about Patch quite a bit in my books. I think he was a superb commander, very understated not a, not a publicity hound in the way that Patton was at all. And tragically he lost, he had only one child his a son and he lost his son in October of 1944. So you have a guy that's in, you know, Patch is a, a guy that's in command of at least 250,000 men. And he's doing that, you know, barely sleeping under crushing stress day after day, trying to get this war won. And he, he discovers that his own son has been killed. And, uh, I quote some of the, the, the letters that he sent to his wife, which are, are really heartbreaking. You know, to, to lose your only son
0: is, is a big deal. Yeah. So let's talk about, So these guys were, from the beginning, 1942, they were, they were fighting all the way through 1944. So let's talk about some of these men you highlight. The first one is this guy named Maurice Footsie Britt. What was Britt like before the war? And then how did he end up in the uh, 3rd Infantry Division?
1: He grew up in uh, rural Arkansas, and his dad died when he was, I think, 14 years old. He had to work very, very hard to put himself through high school. He was a brilliant athlete at high school, particularly baseball and football, and then got a scholarship to the University of Arkansas, where he played for the Razorbacks and was such a good player that he was recruited by the Detroit Lions. So I think he had one, one full season with the Lions, before he was called up and called into the third infantry
0: division, well, and I was going to say he played with uh, Byron White. That's kind of you know, the the Supreme yeah, Court yeah, justice, the, 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 yeah, the, the future
1: Supreme Court justice. And I think the New England guy Belichick, his father played with him at the Detroit Lions. You'd have to check that, but yeah, but a future Supreme Court justice was was on the same team as, as Morris Footsie Britt. He was nicknamed Footsie Britt because he had such large feet. But yeah, he was a handsome guy, you know, tough, very athletic, very fit, obviously. And he first saw combat in Italy as a company commander. He started his his ordeal in Italy in September of 1943 and received the Medal of Honor for actions in November of 1943 at Mount Rotundo, where he was described as performing like a one-man army through countless grenades and, and fended off a German attack and was just was extraordinary. I mean, it, it's just
0: superhuman courage and uh, and resilience in a way, you know. Yeah. So he not only earned the Medal of Honor. We'll talk about you know kind of his actions there, but he was one of the most decorated soldiers, you know, next to Audie Murphy. Like he, Silver Star, Distinguished Service Cross, couple Purple Hearts, Bronze Star.
1: Yeah. He actually had the distinction of being the first U.S. soldier to receive every medal for valor that you could get in World War II. So that's, as you mentioned, Bronze Star, Silver Star, DSC, Medal of Honor. And he completed the the set, if you like, when he received the DSC in December of 1944 on the steps of the New York Public Library. It was a big, big media event. So he was the first American to win every medal for valour that you could win in World War Two. He was subsequently beaten in the medal count by Audie Murphy, because Murphy also managed to win receive all four medals and had the Legion of Honor and other, I think he had a three silver stars. I'll have to check. But anyway, if you add add up the medals at the end of the war and you give them various points, Audie Murphy became the most decorated. According to my research and my sources, he became the most decorated soldier of World War II. But Morris Britt was just behind him. He pipped him to the post. And what was interesting was that the third ID newspaper, which was called Frontline in the spring of 1945, they discovered that, you know, Brit had won all these medals. They knew that, but they discovered that Audie Murphy was not far behind in the medal count and that there was even a headline which, you know, blared that uh, Murphy equals Brit. And then later on, there's another story that I came across where they, they, they treated the medal count almost like a game, like a, a sports competition that, you know, that these two guys were, were competing in some way. They weren't, but um, it made for a nice story. So Britt got his Medal of Honor Citation at Mount Rotundo. What happened there? Mount Rotundo is right in the center of Italy, on the, in the Apennines, north of Naples. And that was a part of a very bitter mountain campaign that the 3rd ID waged. They were on the line for, I think, almost three months uh, of almost continuous combat. And it was at Mount Rotundo that uh, Britt, as a company commander in the 30th Infantry Division, uh, fended off with his company Uh, a very important uh, German attack that had they not fended it off, a lot more Americans would have been captured, killed, or wounded, and uh, they would have perhaps lost their positions on Mount Rotundo, which was an important strategic
0: objective. No, so I'm looking at his Medal of Honor citation here, and it's saying, okay, he, he suffered all these wounds, but despite his wounds, he refused to accept medical attention, and then he personally killed five and wounded an unknown number of Germans, wiped out one enemy machine gun crew, Fired five clips of carbine and undetermined amount of M1 rifle ammunition, and threw thirty-two fragmentation grenades. And then, in the process, this is where this—he didn't lose his arm here at this point, correct? No, no. Okay, so he gets—I mean, so basically, he's like a one-one man army here. After this, he goes on to keep. He just keeps going on. Where did he lose his arm? Uh, at Anzio, he was. At, it was um, late January of 1944.
1: He came ashore. Um, on the first day of the invasion, Anzio is about an hour from Rome on the coast. It's like It was the nearest place that we could land a lot of troops, that where we could try and push towards Rome. And at the height of the fighting during the Battle of Anzio, a shell, actually a tank shell, came through a window where he was standing and exploded inside a room and um, killed several guys and wounded uh, a fair few. And um, Britt had his arm blown off, had a lot of shrapnel wounds too but his arm was blown off and had it not been for a sergeant who was nearby that took off his belt and applied a tourniquet Britt probably would have died Um, so he, he, uh, he he lost his arm, he never got to play professional football again obviously and came back to America and received the Medal of Honor at a special ceremony at the University of Arkansas on the 5th of June 1944 so he became a Really iconic figure, certainly in, in Arkansas, went on lots of war bond drives and whipped up public support for, for the war effort, etc. But, uh, you know, paid a high price. Um, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't ever say so because he came home and he was alive and he had a, a very full and, and uh, happy life in, in, in so many ways. But, you know, he did, in terms of his wounds, he never, it wasn't a day of his life that he wasn't in pain and when he finally died, it was because of a. He went in for an operation, and uh, it was a, a, a complication during the operation caused by a World War II wound that actually killed him in the end. So, um, finally, even those wounds he suffered at Anzio did him in. But he had been had a, a, a very interesting and, and very, I'd say,
0: very happy life. No, I'd say. I mean, out of all the the, the men you highlight he, he seemed to have i mean he seemed to be pretty well adjusted afterwards like he went on to run a business he was a politician and yeah he seemed to have had, like in this uh, surgery that he did i mean this happened in 1995 so this is a long like this is a wound from world war ii that's that th- that thing finally got caught up with him in 1995 like a long time yeah,
1: yeah yeah and he you know he's he was lieutenant governor of arkansas um much beloved figure you know a, a you know, went to as many football games as he could at, at the University of Arkansas, where he's still revered, and had a, uh, you know, successful business career, came back and um, worked very hard and uh, brought up a really great family. I, I spoke to his grandson several times, and he said, you know, my I never remember my grandfather being anything anything but positive and optimistic and happy, you know? So I think the remarkable thing about the guys that I've written about is that um, even though they suffered a lot of PS- PTSD and went through real trauma and ordeals during the war, unimaginable ordeals, they came back and they, they somehow were able to put the water to, to one side, never behind them. And they were they led productive lives. I mean, the, of the four I write about, Audie Murphy's probably the best known. And even though he, of all The guys I write about had the most severe PTSD. He still was a very productive guy. I mean, he made over 30 westerns. He was a Hollywood movie star. He wrote country and western songs, a best selling autobiography, you know, and had a tragically died pretty young at 46, but led a very interesting and very productive life, even though he was
0: deeply tormented by
1: what he'd experienced
0: in world war ii one thing you described with morris britt he described after you know he goes back gets the medal of honor he gets the distinguished service cross for his actions at anzio where he loses his arm but then he described like you said he got he gets put on the war bonds circuit and he described you know kind of being in the hero's cage and that, that's something you often don't think about with these guys who you know display all this heroics they think oh they come back they're a hero but then the it's kind of a drag for a bit. Because you don't really have any control over your life.
1: Yeah, no, and you have to remember that none of these men that I write about, and in fact, I, no recipient of the Medal of Honor is looking to win the Medal of Honor. You know, or, or rather, earn the, the Medal of Honor. You don't win the Medal of Honor; it's given to you by Congress. It's a, it's an act, a governmental act. But uh, they certainly weren't looking for glory, and they didn't want to become public superstars or superheroes. Rather, they. They were very committed to their cause. They wanted to save lives. They were utterly selfless. And most of the time, they were just trying to get a job done. And they realized that unless they did it, nobody else would, or they could do it better. Certainly, that was the case in in, in with Audie Murphy. They So when they came home and they were suddenly paraded everywhere and treated as if they were superhuman, they, they, they didn't feel like superheroes. And a lot of them, you know, you, you come across cases where Medal of Honor recipients say that you know receiving the medal makes me is an incredibly proud moment in their lives. But you know, as that medal is hung around their neck in the White House, it also that act reminds them of sometimes the worst time in their life. You know, when they lost other friends, when they were in in deep combat. So it's a it's a it's a burden for some of them. And I, I don't, you I know, mean, that, that's not to say hey, they don't. You know, the Medal of Honor recipients that I interviewed. We're very, very proud of that of that ultimate award. But as Bob Maxwell, the oldest living recipient, when I interviewed him, told me that it weighed heavy. That medal does weigh heavy. You can't, you know, you can't get drunk in public. You can't get divorced. You, you got to be. You got to lead this virtuous, perfect life. And no one is is 100% virtuous or perfect. But Medal of Honor recipients are held to a higher standard, even though they're just they're basically just like the rest of us. They're human, except that they have performed it extraordinary feats on the battlefield,
0: you know? We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Are you hiring? What type of role are you hiring for? Maybe you need to hire someone to wear mini hats, which can be challenging to do. Or you might have a simple position to fill, but it's taking forever to find someone who's a great fit for your company. Whether you need to hire a civil engineer in New York, an attorney in Colorado, a pediatric nurse in Nebraska, or even a mascot in Missouri, ZipRecruiter can help you find qualified candidates fast. And now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com/manliness. From accountant to zoologist and everything in between, ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right experience for your job and presents them to you. And then you can invite your top choices to apply. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it now for free at this exclusive web address: ZipRecruiter.com/manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. Nothing is too niche for Squarespace, and whatever your hobby is, you can start a business for it. For example, if your passion is Muzak, I'm talking the music they play in elevators or in department stores in the 1980s, if that's your passion, I'm sure you can build a business around that, and Squarespace can help you do that. With Squarespace email campaigns, you'll stand out in the inbox, start with an email template, and customize it by applying your brand ingredients like site colors and logo. Squarespace's insights can help you grow your business. You can even build a marketing strategy based on your top keywords or most popular products and content thanks to Squarespace analytics. And you stand out with a beautiful website that's easy to make in just a few minutes, point, click, drag, and you have a great looking website that's compatible on smartphones as well. Engage with your audience and you can sell anything, your products, content you create, even your time, all with Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use promo code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. So another member of the third infantry division you highlight who won the Medal of Honor is Michael Daly. And he's an interesting character because he came from a family with a storied military legacy. And it seemed like, you know, he was trying to live up to that throughout his whole time in the military.
1: Yeah, definitely. His father was Colonel Paul Daly and he was a decorated World War One veteran and actually was a regimental commander during World War II in Europe. So, you know, father and son were both in combat in the uh, summer of 1944, not in the same division, but they were definitely in the same same battle. So Michael Daly was at West Point and he dropped out in 1943, age 19, really didn't like West Point at all. Didn't like the hazing, didn't like the what he called you know the intense regimentation. It's kind of ironic that you'd go to West Point and not like to, have to take orders all the time, but he didn't enjoy that one bit. And he one day apparently... He threw his books in a corner and said, "I'm I'm dumb." And joined up as a grunt. He was there. his first day of combat as a private was on June the sixth, nineteen forty four, on Omaha Beach with the the big red one. So he fought from June the sixth with that division all the way across Normandy. He received the Silver Star in the summer of night for actions in the summer of nineteen forty four. Wounded in the fall of nineteen forty four near Aachen, on right on the German border there. That's a, the first German city that Americans started to to fight for, and then was seconded to Alexander Patch's headquarters. Patch was the Seventh Army commander. We talked about him, and Patch was a very good friend of Colonel Paul Daly, Michael Daly's father, so there were a lot of family connections there. And Daly, you know, one day said that, I don't want to be your driver anymore. I don't want to set out the war. I don't want to be in a headquarters behind the front lines. I want to go back into combat, and was granted his... Wish, and ended up in the third ID in the same regiment as three of the guys that I write about out of the four. So Michael Daly, Audie Murphy, and a guy called Keith Ware, of the four main characters I chose, those three were all in the 15th Infantry Regiment. And Daly went on the line in late December 1944 in the Colmar Pocket, and then fought all the way through to Nuremberg, where he performed acts... During urban fighting in Nuremberg in April of 1945, for which he received the Medal of Honor, I think it were like three or, you know, you never know when you look at the when you look at the official reports, when you look at recommendations, it's like they're they're so number based. It's like he killed X amount of men, took out X amount of machine guns, threw X amount of grenades, and they're never perfectly accurate because you know the nature of combat is so chaotic that um, it's hard to actually sort of pin down exactly. know how many grenades they threw i mean Britt joked about later on you know that in the citation it said that he'd thrown 32 fragmentation grenades and Britt later on joked well how did they know that you know how did did they know that i threw 32 because i wasn't counting you know (laughs) but anyway michael daly um you know he it was in nuremberg and his his deal was that you know at 20 years old he was a company commander he was a company commander in the 15th infantry regiment you know, so that means he's responsible for, responsible for around 200 young American lives. And he's just, you know, he's 20 years old. It's a hell of a responsibility. And his mission was that he was to take as many of those guys home with him as possible, if he was lucky. And therefore, he volunteered or rather just took command and and performed some of the most daring acts. You know, if something had to be done that late in the war he he decided to do it himself. And that was certainly the case in Nuremberg where he went ahead of his company and uh, took out, I think there were four machine gun emplacements near a, a park right at the heart of Nuremberg. And that was the 17th of April, 1945. And then the next day he was shot through the face really badly. I mean, it, it, uh, a bullet, a sniper bullet went from one side of his head to the other and he fell to the ground. And I came across her and I went to support that, uh, described this incredible moment when Daly, lying there, coughing up blood, takes out a pencil from his uh, combat jacket pocket and stuck it down his throat and performed a kind of basic tracheotomy, he cleared his windpipe. So that's like a, you know, that's, that's, that takes a hell of a lot of sang froid and coolness to be able to, to do that when you're bleeding to death. Thank God he had a pencil on him. So he was given last rites. Very religious guy, Irish Catholic from Connecticut, you know, a, a, a well-off background. His father was a successful lawyer after World War One, So he didn't lack money when he was growing up, unlike the other guys I write about who grew up in really in extreme poverty in the depths of the Depression, uh, given last rights. And, um, you know, miraculously, he you know, someone decided they would operate on him and he, he survived and uh, came back to the U.S., badly wounded took a long time to recover from his wounds, was a pretty heavy drinker for a while, got into some scraps, pretty directionless, looking for a a way of finding a sense of real meaning in his life. And finally, you know, married and started his own, started a business. Uh, But he said it wasn't until he started to volunteer with a local hospital and work with veterans that he found any kind of real deep meaning and purpose to his life and famously, or rather importantly would tell as many people as he could that the secret to fulfillment in life is not a big IRA account and three cars and as many foreign holidays and as much money as you can make. It's about finding a cause greater than yourself. Service to other people is what actually gives most people a hell of a lot of satisfaction and is very important to having a fulfilling life. And he he believed that absolutely. He said that world war ii was the greatest honor of his life to lead young americans in combat they had a a cause that was far greater than themselves every one of those guys that he was with were, were putting their lives on the line every day and it was something that he thought was extraordinary and inspiring and he as i said struggled to find any kind of purpose that was that matched liberating europe in world war ii
0: The next guy you highlight is Keith Ware. And what's interesting about him is, unlike the other guys you highlight, that they all signed up, Ware was a draftee.
1: Yeah, he's actually, um, it's interesting because he was in California working for a, uh, a catalog company as, you know, pushing a pen in an office when he was drafted. And I think he was 24 years old. So he became, when he was drafted, and because he had no prior military experience, you know, he'd not been in ROTC, he'd not been in the National Guard, he had no prior military experience. So it's believed that he is the only draftee in US military history to rise to the rank of general officer. He actually, at the end of his life, was uh, commander of the Big Red One, the first ID in Vietnam, where he was killed in 1968, tragically. But yeah, an incredible guy, you know, the sort of person you'd never think, you know, unremarkable looking, you not you know, not like Morris Britt, some sort of strapping athlete, you know, wore spectacles, and yet this draftee went went all the way. He went through went through Sicily, Italy, France, all the way to the end of the war. Actually he was Morris he was Audie Murphy's company commander in Sicily. Murphy belonged to B Company from the 15th Infantry Regiment all the way through the war, actually ended up commanding B Company, but on 10th of July 1943, Murphy, as a private, landed in Sicily, and his company commander in B Company was Keith Ware. And after a couple of days, Ware apparently said to Audie Murphy, you know, I'm not going to have a kid killed on my command, you know, but what the hell are you doing in, in the U.S. Army? What are you doing in my company? And Ware said that he, Murphy at the time was 18 years old, but he actually looked, he said, Ware said that actually Murphy looked like he was 14. He looked a lot younger. And if you look at pictures of Audie Murphy from that period, he looks like a boy. I mean he really does look like a, a teenage boy. He doesn't a, a young teenage boy. He's, you know, very, very youthful indeed. So where I said you're out, you're out of the front lines, I'm gonna make you a runner. I'm not I'm not having I'm not gonna be responsible for get, getting kids killed under my command. And Audie Murphy became a runner for a while and then insisted on going back in the front lines and where I said, okay, if you want to go back, you can go back, be it on you. And he did, and he stayed there from July 1943 all the way to the end of the war. He was wounded twice. So the taken out of combat, arrived in Anzio two weeks later than everybody else, because he'd suffered from influenza and had arrived late. But though there were so there were two weeks in Anzio that he missed, and then there were, I believe, two months in the fall of 1944 that he missed because he was wounded by a sniper, very badly wounded by a sniper, but basically just two and a half months from out of that very, very long period of time, July 1943 to May of 1945, Audie Murphy was in the war for all but two and a half months. Incredible. And uh, as he said, you know, the fact that he survived was something of a miracle. He was, defying all the odds a fugitive from the law of averages. He said that's how he described himself as a fugitive from the law of averages. So, uh, amazing, that he lived so long, amazing that he, he wasn't killed and, uh, just an re- absolutely remarkable story of a, I think one of America's finest ever warriors. I, I haven't come across anybody like him in from World War II. who was as lethal as daring as cool under fire. As uh, instinctual as a as a combat warrior than
0: than Audie Murphy. Well, going back to where, what did he do to get his citation for the Medal of Honor?
1: Where was uh, he rose to the ranks? And in December of 1944, in the Battle of the Colmar Pocket, right on the German border, in view actually of the Rhine. So you go south from the Battle of the Bulge in the Ardennes. You go south about 200 miles, and you get to Colmar, which is on the actual Rhine. And there was a what was called a, the Colmar Pocket, which was a, a pocket reaching into France and into Alsace, where the Germans stood and held and fought very valiantly, and held up the held up the Americans for basically two months. And in December of 1944, Keith Ware was at a place called time in a vineyard, and uh, basically his men were pinned down by the Germans, suffering high casualties, and he basically grabbed a Browning automatic rifle and commandeered, you know, basically called a tank to, to the front and went ahead of the tank and fired at various machine gun installations and with tracer fire directing the tanks fire and cleared out the German opposition that on a hill near Siegelsheim in the common pocket. And for that, he received the medal of honor. So he's a Lieutenant Colonel, a battalion commander. You don't, you don't see that happen very often in, in a war he shouldn't. You know, strictly speaking, you're not supposed to be that close to the front. You need. You need. You should be behind the lines to some extent, giving orders. But he knew that unless he took control, unless he showed his men how to do the job, it wouldn't get done. And uh, so he just did it. He just for about an hour and a half, you know, standing back straight, walked up a hill in the middle of a vineyard and pounded the hell out of German machine gun places.
0: Quite extraordinary. And yeah, as you said, his he continued in the military and he rose all the way to the ranks rank of general. And I mean, he actually his life ended in Vietnam.
1: Actually, strictly speaking, it ended in 1968 in Cambodia. But publicly, we were not supposed to be talking about being in Cambodia. But by 1968, we were in Cambodia, or rather, I said the Americans were in Cambodia a hell of a lot because that's where you went and sought out the enemy. That's where the Viet Cong were. So he was in a helicopter which was shot down by the enemy. And he was killed in 1968. I think he was the highest ranking army officer to die in 1968, maybe the Vietnam War, but a division commander killed in, in combat was was a tragedy. And, you know, this guy had given his whole entire life to the U.S. military, received the Medal of Honor in World War One, and it's very sad that he should die at, I think it was age 53, in, in Vietnam in 1968. He's actually buried at Arlington National Cemetery, and I, been to his grave and it's not very far. I mean, it's a five minute walk from his grave to Audie Murphy's and they actually, you know, they stayed in touch after the war. As I said, they had this connection from right at the beginning, day one, when Americans started to liberate Europe and Sicily, where was Audie Murphy's company commander. And then he was, as Ware rose to the ranks, he, made, he was still had authority and control over whatever position Murphy was in. So, you know they fought. They fought in the same unit, the 15th Infantry Regiment, all the way through the war, and stayed in touch. Murphy in 1955 made a really big movie called To Hell and Back, which was based on his autobiography, which was a big bestseller. And Murphy starred in in his own movie, and he contacted Ware and said, "Would you be the technical advisor on the movie?" And Ware was at West Point at the time, teaching, and Ware said, "I'm I'm sorry, but I'd love to, but I'm I'm too busy." But when Ware was killed, Murphy took it really badly. You know, he had a great deal of respect for Ware. He, he, they'd been through the war together. They were bonded by that. Uh, in fact, in in the fall of 1944, Murphy had saved Ware's life. Ware was at the front trying to see what the hell was was uh, pinning down part of his battalion, and he came across Murphy and went ahead in a scouting patrol. And Murphy was worried that these guys were going to walk into hell, and they did. and and through Murphy's quick actions, he managed to save Ware's life. So I think that Ware, without a doubt, felt you know a great kinship with Murphy, and also you know to some extent felt like he you know he owed him his life because he he literally was came within a hair's breadth of being killed by the Germans, and had it not been for Murphy, he he, he well may
0: have, have been killed. So we've been yeah we've been talking about Audie Murphy throughout this, and I'm sure and people who are listening to this podcast have probably heard of Audie Murphy. He's got an interesting, I mean, his whole career was just crazy. So, you know, started off when he was born. He's born in Texas, broken family. He was picking cotton. When the war started, he wanted to sign up, but he was underage, underweight. I think his sister finally lied and signed an affidavit saying, Yeah, he's old enough to to join up. He he joins up and what I mean, what do you think what it was about Murphy? I mean, he was just like baby faced looking guy but he was just this fierce courageous warrior like what was it just something he was like his temperament he was born with
1: that's uh, a great question you know what what makes a great warrior murphy had a very very i mean he went through a war before he even got into a war so he had a very very tough brutalizing childhood and hunted to put food on the table uh, so he was a superb shot actually uncannily great shot i came across a couple of one eyewitness report, in particular, that uh, described Murphy in training, and he was literally running along with a, a carbine and hold several targets perfectly from like I think 100 yards. So he's running and firing at targets 100 yards away and holding them perfectly. So he could move at Great speed. He, he, you know, I think he was only like five foot eight, five foot seven, five foot eight. So he could get down close to the ground and move at great speed, which was very useful. You know, he made himself a small target. Highly mobile, very, very fast, very good reactions. A, a predator, I mean, a superb hunter and a, and a human predator. A, I would not have liked to be in a German anywhere near where Audie Murphy was in World War II. Some people, you know, they come up with these figures. I don't know where the hell they get them from, that, you know, that he killed over 120 Germans. Could have been a lot more, who knows. But he certainly was very, very effective, very calm made split-second decisions, could scan the landscape, knew how to to stay low, how to read a situation, knew how to hunt the enemy, knew how to find them, knew how to conserve his energy, knew how to kill up close very quickly, and was a superb shot, for absolutely fantastic shot. When he was wounded by a sniper, he was shot in the backside. So eventually, I think they took like three or four pounds of flesh out of his buttock because the wound became gangrenous, But when he went down, the sniper that hit him was under a cape and he, Murphy was like trying to find cover. He was in agony and he was bleeding, but he was, he also was aware enough to try and make himself as small a target as possible. He tried to find some kind of cover. The sniper then lifted the cape again to finish him off the German sniper. And Murphy saw this, basically like a twitch in the distance. He saw this cape rise for like a, you know a second. And at that very second bang, he put a bullet right through the German's forehead. So, you know, imagine lying there in agony with half your backside shot off. And, you know, you've got the sang to, with a rifle to, to wait for that split second of movement and then put a bullet through someone's head
0: from 50 yards. And, and how he earned his Medal of Honor citation. I mean, it's just this... I mean, you could. It's like made for the movie. Like uh, it was basically commandeered a a broken down tank, and started using the fifty caliber machine gun to just take people out. Yeah, that was again in the Colmar pocket near Holtzweir village
1: called Holtzweir, where I've been, and the Germans attacked. And Murphy knew that his company B would be probably wiped out if he didn't take action, and he jumped onto a burning tank, moved the dead body of an American out of the way and fired the 50 cal for some people say it's about an hour um, in his citation it said that he was on the tank for about an hour and repelled several german attacks while the tank was flaming but you know while there were flames leaping around his feet he was wounded uh, hobbled back to his unit reorganized his unit company b and then counter-attacked even though he'd was wounded. So, you know, it's just like, again, almost like a one man army, but uh, extraordinary actions. And the, what's interesting is that where his company command, it, it, as I mentioned, his com- commanding officer through most of the war, he was the one that actually made a recommendation, wrote up Murphy and had him recommended for the medal of honor. And in, it was quite interesting to see that, you know, when you read the recommendation that where believed that, that uh, Murphy had saved the day that if it hadn't been for Murphy, a hell of a lot of Americans would have been killed that day. It was a 26th of March, 1945,
0: in the Colomar pocket. And as you said earlier, Murphy ended up being the most decorated soldier of World War II, correct? Well, we have to be careful here because many people say that he
1: not only was the most decorated soldier from US soldier from World War II, but the most decorated of all time. But I don't think we can make that argument because, you know, number one in – the First World War, for example, you couldn't receive as many medals. The Bronze Star didn't didn't exist, for example. But uh, as an infantryman, you can say, I think that without being discredited, I think that you could say that he was the most decorated U.S. infantryman to serve in the U.S. Army in, in World War Two. Yeah.
0: Gotcha well, and then afterwards like Murphy out of all the, he seemed to have the, the the biggest problems with PTSD, but he also seemed to be like that he he used his own PTSD to try to reach out to other veterans and help them out as well
1: yeah, he struggled a lot I mean you know he became a chronic gambler in the nineteen late late 1940s 50s he, he he was a hell of a gambler and that was a kind I think in a way the only thing that gave him the sort of buzz that he had from that he in that he'd uh, experienced in World War II. He was looking for that sense of sort of excitement. He never, he said he could never feel like that sense of adrenaline rush or that intensity of of life again after World War II. And yeah, had had suffered with PTSD, you know, his first marriage sort of fell apart because, you know, he was very troubled, very woke up and had terrible nightmares, slept with a pistol under his pillow, um, would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, feeling like as if he was back in combat and fire the pistol and various objects in his house. So yeah, trouble. But, you know, people have to remember that, you know, this guy had been through extraordinary trauma and seen so many people killed, had been wounded badly himself, you know, under shell fire for day after day after day, enough to shred most people's nerves to pieces. And yet he came back and and became a movie star. And whenever he was called out to, on Memorial Day or to at ceremonies, et cetera, to support the US military to to do what he could. He did, and he did it with great pride and, and professionalism. So yeah, deeply troubled, but um, at the same time managed to be highly functional, you know? Well how did he how did he become a movie star? How did that happen? Do you just kind of fall into that? His face was on the front of Life magazine in July of nineteen forty five. He was became the, the poster boy, if you like, for American heroism in world war ii the ultimate you know gi and uh jimmy cagney in hollywood picked up life magazine looked at this you know boy on the front cover you know medal of honor dangling around his neck and thought wow this guy's this guy's a star he's he's a very handsome it's you know you couldn't couldn't make this up and uh, he contacted murphy in texas when murphy went back and he said uh, come out and stay with me in hollywood and i'll um I'll, I'll help you get a career in Hollywood. So I think it was the fall of 1945. Murphy went and stayed with Jimmy Cagney. Stayed in his at his home in, in Hollywood. And Cagney got him started in a gym. Tried to sort of help him rehabilitate him in in, in some ways. Cagney said he looked terrible when he came came back from the war. He was very very thin and, and uh, he looked like he'd really been through hell and back. And then uh, got him. I think Cagney helped him. Paid for some acting classes. And then finally in 1947, Murphy picked up his first role. I think it was in a movie, ironically, about West Point. And from there on, the rest is history, you know, starting Red Badge of Courage and uh, that great John Huston movie. And then the, his most successful movie was The Hell and Back, which came out in 1955,
0: which is the is the actual book that Murphy wrote himself about his time in war. And then he ended up dying at, what, 46 uh, in a plane crash. Not
1: not far from Roanoke in, in Virginia. And it was quite ironic in a way that the colors of the plane were blue and white. And that, the, that that's the the insignia for the third ID is blue and white, blue and white, a patch with blue and white stripes. So people pointed that out, that it was kind of ironic that he died in a plane, which is the same colors of, as the
0: unit he'd fought with throughout World War II. As you took a deep dive into the lives of these men, like did you take any, way, any life lessons from them? Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, it's incredibly humbling or inspiring, and uh, it makes you feel extremely small to, to spend quite a bit of time writing about such incredibly strong, determined, inspirational people. Uh, they were very selfless. They gave an enormous amount. They were extremely fortunate and blessed. I believe to be able to survive world war two and they were, they loved other people. They had a great love for other human beings and especially the men that especially the men that men, they commanded and were utterly, utterly selfless. Their courage was really about doing whatever they could to keep others alive and to save lives. Yeah. look, Life lessons that, you know, are, are, are so humbling because they, they achieved so much and they had such essentially good lives saying, what they did in World War II was unbelievable, but then to come back and raise families and, and give back yet again and serve others through their communities, through whatever they could do to help others in their communities, which included Audie Murphy, that was amazing. They lived fantastic lives. They were They were great, great men
0: and great Americans. You know, they were just really, really inspirational figures. You've written, you know, numerous books about World War II. I mean, what keeps you interested in and drawn back to that period? I think it's the stories are amazing.
1: You can't, I don't think you can find better war stories than those from World War II. The stakes were so high. Um, you know, most wars are very morally complicated. You know, World War II was a very important victory for for Americans and very important for us, as Lyme as it was the... The guys that I write about predominantly put everything on the line to liberate Europe, to restore democracy and civilization to a place where complete evil had, had uh, taken over. They stopped genocide. They stopped the Holocaust. They gave so many millions of people hope. They, they gave them freedom, democracy, and, and, and wonderful lives. I, I mean, I'm 56 years old, and I've grown up in a... I was 28 when I left... England, but I consider myself a European and I'll always be massively indebted to those young Americans, Brits, Canadians, New Zealanders. But you know, I live in America, so I'm particularly grateful to the Americans that I've written about for making uh, giving so much to restore everything that matters to a beautiful part of the world. That you know, I'm, I'm going to be there back there in a couple of weeks and. They uh, they brought light to a place of immense darkness and evil, and uh, we can never ever thank them enough. It was an unbelievable achievement, the greatest I think in American history, the greatest chapter of American history. The greatest American heroes come from World War II, because and it's the results of what they achieved. The 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 immensity of that gift is is with us today. We can vote. We live in a free country, and most Europeans were liberated by. By what
0: these guys I write about. Well, Alex, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Yeah, you can go to alexkershaw.com and you know you can find the book online at Amazon and go to your local independent bookstore if you've got one, because that's all that's let's not forget. The more books you buy in a local independent bookstore, the more independent bookstores there will be around in, in the future. So yeah, you can find it anywhere at good bookstores, etc. And um, you know, I hope people I hope people really enjoy it. I found it a, a really amazing, moving experience to, to write about these guys. And I, I
0: hope people will be inspired. Well, Alex Kershaw, thanks for his time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today was Alex Kershaw. He's the author of the book Against All Odds. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, alexkershaw.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash against all odds. You can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you Think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on a List Day Win Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.